The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount that I've said over and over is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that has ever lived. That Christ is introducing his kingdom. That he is saying when you come into relationship with me, when you encounter me, Everything is undone. That he doesn't come in to offer help within one area of life. We, we love compartmentalized faith and religion. We want enough Jesus to fix our marriage. We want enough Jesus to get our businesses back on their feet. We want enough of Jesus to get over an addiction. We want enough of Jesus to make sure our kids uh, don't go nuts and get lost. But we don't want all of Jesus because we know if we give all to Jesus, uh, then we lose the right of self-rule. And so we love a little Jesus. We have our Jesus bell and we ring it as if we were calling Jeeves and saying, please come in and serve me. Fix this, take care of this for me. But Jesus, when he was on the mount and he invited the disciples and others to gather around him, he said, I'm not like any other king that you've ever dealt with. I'm a king who comes in and I establish my kingdom in its fullness and all of its glory and all of its reign. But I'm not just a king of justice and of power and of majesty. I'm also a king of mercy and of love and of grace. And I bring these things perfectly together within my kingdom because you see, there are only two places that you find yourself in all of the world. Either you are in Christ's kingdom or you're in the kingdom that's opposed to him. There's no other place. It's one or the other. You are either for Christ or you're against him. And Jesus is saying here, and he's teaching us here, and it's been preserved in his word here for us to bring us into his kingdom, to invite us in, to seal us and to win us into his kingdom through his word. And so I hope that you read it that way this week, that you hear it that way, that this incredibly gracious and powerful king is looking and saying, I want you to understand how to live in the world, yes. But I want you to understand how awesome of a king I am, that I'm able to dissect the world around you, show you all of its fallacies, all of its false hopes, all the pretenders to my throne, to disband them, as it were, deconstruct them, and then construct in front of you the beauty of the true king and the true kingdom and invite you into that place. And last week he said, as believers as those in the kingdom who live in the world but aren't of the world uh, that we face and we look at wealth and treasure and all of the things of this world differently than the world does we have to we're a different kingdom we don't have the same mindset and he was saying not that it's wrong to have desire for marriage or desire for children, desire to make money, uh, desire to be successful, desire to graduate with honors. Uh, It's not wrong to have any of those desires. He's saying what's wrong and what he opposes is when those good desires take an ultimate place in your life and you say, I have to have them in order to be happy. I have to have them in order to be satisfied. They become your pseudo savior. They become that which gives you meaning in life. And Jesus is saying, I oppose all of those. You can't serve me and mammon. You can't serve me and anything else. It's one or the other. And so the question, uh, as we left last week, was simply, what's your treasure? Where's your treasure? 
And I hope that you spent some time this week considering that question, maybe being challenged by what you found, and then beginning to shift, and we used the language at the end last week, of the expulsive power of a new affection, of allowing Christ to be your new affection, that as He takes place, all the other affections get moved out of their central place. They may be there, but they go to their right place. That I love my wife, I love my sons, I love my job. I have that, but the true love of Christ displaces them and puts them where they're supposed to be. That they're still there, but they're ordered more properly in the midst of that. And this week he comes, and so beautifully structuring the sermon, says, friends, if your life is all about this life, if your hope is tethered to this world, if the things of this world drive you, if they give you meaning and significance, if this world is all there is, you're going to be riddled with worry and anxiety. That you're not going to sleep well at night, that you're going to pace the floors, that you're going to wring your hands out, you're going to be worried. And Jesus comes now and he doesn't give just a set of dictates to say, don't worry. He does say that, don't be anxious. But he says, let me expose why you're anxious. And then place in its place something that can remove that anxiety. So as we now approach God's word, looking at Matthew chapter 6, picking up in verse 25, let's ask his blessing upon this time. Father, we come and we ask that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word, that you would speak again today powerfully, that we would listen, and that you would calm our anxious thoughts. That, Father, we cast these things upon you, And we pray that you would grant to us a peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of chaos and storms. So hear us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. In my job, I have such a pleasure and privilege to be able to study and prepare. And this week, as I was studying and reading, I go to men who are my pastors, as it were, to read uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Robert Murray McShane, John Stott, see John Piper and Tim Keller, James Montgomery Boyce, names that I hope that you're familiar with and men that you listen to and read and that they would be at some level your pastors as well. For as they've 
as they have dived into uh, this passage, they have mined out incredible gems that are a blessing to me, and I'm indebted to them today as I bring some of them to you. And what I found in studying this is it's very straightforward what Jesus is saying. He first gives a critique, as it were, of anxiety. He gives an understanding of what anxiety is, what are its causes, what are the roots that are underlying it. And then he presents very clearly what is the cure for anxiety, what's the solution for the anxious heart, where does its hope lie. And so first, let's consider anxiety. What causes it? What is our understanding? You see, Jesus doesn't come and simply give a dictate of don't be anxious. He does say that. He, he says it three times in this passage. He repeats it. But what he is saying is he says, don't be anxious. And for many of you, you go, that's what church is like to me. That's what I always thought church was like. It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And we're just supposed to do it. And my parents never explained it to me. And the pastor never explained it to me. It's just a bunch of religious rules. And I don't get it. And Jesus wasn't that kind of pastor. He wasn't that kind of parent. He wasn't that kind of friend. He says, don't be anxious. There is a dictate of saying actively pursue non-anxiety, as it were. Take these things, be accountable for them. But what he does is he, like a surgeon, comes in under, and he says there is something underneath this presenting problem that you need to recognize and understand. You recognize, how many of you would say that at some point in the last week you've worried about something, been a bit anxious about something? It's the majority of the room. Anxiety and worry is not your problem. But for most of us, we try to deal with the problem. We try to deal with anxiety. We try to, to either white-knuckle it or we try techniques to get us to go back to sleep and write things down and do this or that or the other or uh, take a little more melatonin or do something of that and maybe some run to even more sinister things that you go to drugs, you go to alcohol, you go to sex, you go to these things to try to deal with your worry and your anxiety in the world. And what you're doing is you're just messing around at a surface level. I've told you the story of a dear friend, Shelton Sanford, my former pastor and boss at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Hill. His wife was diagnosed with AML leukemia. She had stem cell replacement, and her leukemia went into remission. And then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but some months later, a very bad rash was starting to show on her arm. Now, the doctor could have gone, let's just put a topical cream on there. But the doctor was wise enough and knew her well enough to say, Anne, this is showing me that the AML leukemia has come back and it's broken through your bone and it's now coming up through your skin. I'm not going to treat the rash. I'm going to do a little topical, but what we're going to begin is a radical treatment of your real problem, and that is your cancer has returned. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying you should be aware of anxiety and know about it, Know its roots, but we're going to get up underneath it and we're going to see what's really going on. You see, Jesus wasn't silly enough to, to come to us when we said, I've got a big test and I'm worried. Oh, just quit worrying. I, I, I've got this big thing happening at work this week. Oh, stop worrying. Well, I, I, he doesn't just say buck up. He doesn't just say throw your shoulders back, straighten up and get at it, young man. Young woman, just do your duty. It's not military obedience. Clearly, Jesus wants his disciples to be free from the enslaving anxiety of the enslavement of anxiety. He knows this is a battle. 
He knows that you are going to wake up from time to time with irrational anxiety attacks. He knows that there will be wars and rumors of war. He knows that he is sending us out like lambs uh, in the midst of wolves. He knows that the time will come when those who kill you will think that they are serving God. In spite of all of that, indeed, in the midst of all of that, Christ wants his people to have a peace, not an anxiety. So he's coming and he's talking about this anxiety. I read a quote and a description. Anxiety is better described. It's hard to know exactly what it is, but it's described well this way. Anxiety has been described as the uninvited, ever-present guest in our lives. It seems to be, the, be rampaging through our society like a non-contagious cognitive plague, forming a low-level hum that hides in the corners of our collective minds. I suffer from tinnitus, which is a ringing in my ears. I haven't remembered a day since I was a teenager that there's not a high-pitched squeal or, or a sound of locusts within my ears constantly there reminding me of tinnitus. Anxiety is that same thing for so many of us. It, it is that ringing in the ears. It is that background music. It is the bass notes of Jaws. Bottom, bottom. It's there. So many of you are, are theological in this way. You believe that there really is another shoe and it's going to drop. That's your theology of life. I would encourage you what I told a young couple one day, go home and write in big letters on the wall of your living room. They actually took me up on it. And it said, there is no other shoe. But we're afraid that the shoe's going to drop. Things are going well. must be about to happen bad. We, we accept uh, Eeyore as our theological uh, astute person who says, well, it's a good day, but it's going to rain tomorrow. The house looks good, but it's going to blow down tomorrow. I'm healthy today, but it's probably going to go tomorrow. He was riddled with anxiety. He was always worried about tomorrow, the other shoe. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting more than 40 million adults. That's the diagnosed ones. One in five. Millennials are a great generation with so many gifts and strengths, but they're also the generation that is most anxious in all the generations so far in this world. That we're riddled with anxiety. And we can look around and we think, oh, this is just non-Christians. Christians aren't wrestling with anxiety. Well, you just raised most of your hands today. And here's what I think happens within the Christian church. We drive by on the island and in the low country and you see these little shops that say, come in and someone will read the crystal ball or look at your palm and they'll read your palm and they'll tell you your future. They'll tell you what's going on. And we go, how silly that you would sit around and look in a crystal ball and think that there's somehow power uh, within that. And someone would go, that's demonic and pagan and all of those things which are true. Uh, but we Christians, guess what? You have a little pouch sack that you carry around and it has your crystal ball in. And you pull it out. And you look at it, it's figment. It's not really there. But what you do is you look and you realize that worry is concern about potential, not actual. And you start to worry about tomorrow. What if? What if I get a C? God can't handle my life if I get a C. What if I don't get the promotion? What if the market all of a sudden settles again? 
What if all my investments dry up? What if my loved one? What if my cancer comes back? What if all of these? We sit in front of our little crystal balls and we rub our hands over them and we're not gypsies and we're not sitting inside show things and doing all of this. You're sitting right in church. You're sitting right in your houses. You're sitting right in front of your Bibles and you're rubbing your hands over your crystal balls and we're saying, whatever I'm perceiving in tomorrow, you see, worry is always about tomorrow, but it's felt today. Worry is always about the future, but it is felt in the present. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the future. We're looking at something that doesn't even exist yet. We're determining that it doesn't meet our plans that we've determined for ourselves of how we're going to have to be sustained and be happy. And we begin to fret. Here would be Jesus's statement. Put away your crystal balls. Set them aside for a moment. Because you see, anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. Tim Keller wrote that. Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. We're looking into the future going, I need to control these things. We don't like being out of control. Can I make a a more uh, obvious statement than that? We don't like being out of control. How many of you enjoy not being in control? Very few of you. Very few of you like to not be the person making the decisions. And if you're not making the decisions, you have an acute ability to critique the decision maker and the decisions made, yet unwilling to step into the decision process yourself. We still like to be in control one way or the other. And what God is saying here is at our deepest level, this is showing us what we knew all along, that we have never been in charge, we are not in control, and we never will be. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Under that, it's not necessarily right in front of us, but if you think about that for a moment, what he's saying is you have a desire to add a span, an hour to your life. You want to do something. You want to be in control of your life. And worry is you trying to do that. Your anxiety is you trying to do that. And Jesus is saying, which of you has ever been able to do that? You can't add one minute to your life. You see, we've never been in charge. Jesus says that we're anxious because we disbelieve and dislike the fact that we're totally dependent on God, on the supporting power of God. We don't like it. We're afraid of it. And that's what's causing at the deep root anxiety. You see, biblically, there's an incredible truth underlying that, that we need to understand. And you're going to go, I'm not sure I see it, but I just want you to think about it. And, and you can disagree with me and that's fine. Blaise Pascal, a wonderful French uh, theologian, mathematician, and philosopher, wrote in his book, Pensées, which are his thoughts and meditations. He said this. He said, the greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, why are we upset about not being in control? It's because we were designed to be in control. We were designed to be kings. We were designed to be queens. Because when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he said this, you get to be in control of everything. You get to be lords, as it were, of all of creation. You get to name the animals. You get to rule and to reign. And the only thing in all of the universe that you do not get to rule and reign is me. Because you see, when you're a steward, that's what they were, Adam and Eve were designed to be stewards. A steward is a slave to one person, but a king or queen to everyone else. 
They're a slave to God of saying, God, I'm, you are my master. You are my king. I'm enslaved to you in that way. You're the one who's ultimately in charge. And when I give myself to that, to the rest of everybody else, I'm perceived as a king or a queen. I rule and reign. And you know what Adam and Eve decided? That's not a good enough arrangement. We don't like God still having sovereignty over us. And in their desire to gain more control, in their desire to become more human in their minds, their desire to exert more power, guess what happened? They lost it all. In their effort to gain control, they lost all control. Now it says that you are slaves now even to creation. If you are someone who is addicted to tobacco, guess what has sovereign power over you? A leaf. If you're someone who is addicted uh, to sex, guess what has power over you? Another created being. If you're addicted to wine, a a grape has power over you. So in our effort to say we want to rule and reign, we want to have total sovereignty over all things, guess what? We lost it all. And guess what we're continuing to do today? The exact same thing. That we try to get more and more power and more and more control. And the more we try to get power and the more we try to get control and the more we try to be our masters, the less powerful we feel, the more anxious we feel, and the more worry enters into our lives. Martin Luther was writing to his good friend Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon had shared with Luther that he was anxious, that he was filled with anxiety. And listen to Luther's incredibly surgical response. He wrote back these very simple words. Let Philip cease to rule the world. Martin Luther said to his good friend, Oh, you're worried? Uh, You're filled with anxiety? Here's the solution for you. Quit trying to rule the world. Quit trying to put yourself in a place that you were never designed to be in. Quit trying to be something you were not. Allow God to be in control. Allow God to be that quit trying to take control. So in conclusion of this first point is simply this. We are anxious and we're worried because we want to rule. We want to be in control and we know that we're not. And it drives us crazy. So now, what's the hope for it? We could leave it there and it wouldn't be a very good Sunday. You'd walk out and go, yep, that's how I feel. But Jesus goes, no, we're not going to leave you there. He's going to give us three things, and we'll touch on them quickly. This is much more of a primer uh, than a full discussion on these. But he says, here's the hope for the anxious. Here's how we find healing for anxiety. And there is a place, don't get me wrong, there is a place for those who do have social disorders and anxiety. There is a place for for medicine and for psychiatry and psychology uh, and all of those. So I don't want you to go, hey, Bill said throw out all my medicine. Stop going to counselors. I'm just going to this. But I'm saying that these are some very important things for the Christian to apply in the midst of the different things. One is an active faith. The second is correct thinking. And the third is proper priorities. Active faith, correct thinking, and proper priorities. Active faith, verse 31, Jesus says, O you of little faith. He goes through this whole thing. He says, you're anxious and you're overwhelmed and all of this. And he says at the very heart of it, it's a matter of believing. It's a matter uh, of faith. Worry is always a failure to grasp and apply uh, our faith. Faith doesn't work automatically, by the way. You weren't given faith and it sort of runs on autopilot in your life. Faith has to be exercised. Faith has to be engaged. We, We have to move in faith. We have to engage these things. 
Tim Keller wrote it this way, friends, faith is not passing peaceful thoughts through your mind and faith is not turning your mind off. Faith is a position of confidence toward the world based on what God has said in his word. It's taking what we read in his word and looking at it and applying it forward within the world to actively, not in blind faith. Some people, you may be here and going, I can't be a Christian because it's just blind faith. No, blind faith is continuing to stick your head in the sand and think that you're the best ruler of your life. Because if you look at your record and mine, we don't do a great job. Blind faith is saying, but I believe tomorrow I'll do better. I'll believe that everything's going to be different. No, Christianity isn't blind faith. Christianity is an active seeing faith that says, I see the word of God. I see creation. I trust these things and I will actively put them into action. That Jesus says that faith is thinking. Faith is engaging the mind, not turning off the mind, which leads to the second point, which is correct thinking. All of us are thinking, but for some, we're not thinking uh, properly. Look at verse 26, and then again in verse 28. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than they? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today uh, is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so he says this, here's the key to proper thinking. Think. (laughs) Consider. The word isn't really look. The word is consider. He says, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Take a moment and think about them. Ponder them. Set your mind on them. Think deeply about them. Consider what they're doing. Jesus is saying here, look at them. Isn't that what you do if you go to Pinckney Island today and you've got your binoculars? Aren't you looking at them and going, I'm going to see how I consider uh, how God takes care of the birds and the flowers. I'm going to look at them deeply and I'm going to see God's providence and God's love expressed through those. Isn't that what you do as a bird watcher? Because he's saying, look at the birds and you're going to learn something about the birds. The female uh, cardinal, I don't think she's ever looked at her husband and gone, your feathers are redder than mine. Why aren't my feathers red? Uh, I don't think the mockingbirds are looking at the robins going, their house is nicer than mine. Why is their house so much nicer than mine? None of them are sitting out there going, oh no, wringing their little wings together. What are we going to do? Where's the, where's the food coming from? What are we going to do? Consider them, he says. You're going to learn something from creation. Now for some, you would look at that and go, ah, you're telling me that I don't have to do anything. No, because the birds are busy, by the way. What you would see is the birds are busy. They're always active. It's just saying, don't let the activity consume you in the middle of this. And what you're going to see is Jesus making a double argument as you look and consider, and we need to move on here. It's the providence of God and the love of God. When he says consider, he's saying this, look at how I take care of everything in creation. Look at how I have orchestrated everything. Our confession says uh, that the works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing all his creatures and all his actions. That God is orchestrating and taking care of everything. That he's in charge uh, of everything. 
that he is moving and that you can trust that all the patterns and all the plans that he's put together are for your good and for his glory. Let me ask you the question I've asked you so many times before. How many of you got to choose your birth parents? Any of you? Me neither. How did you get to where you are? How come you weren't born in 4th century outer Mongolia and you never had a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to you? Because of God's providence. That he had you born where you were going to be born to the people that you were born to, raised or adopted into the families that you were raised and adopted into to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That he's orchestrated all of these things together so that you would hear the God. That he's putting all of these things together throughout all of history and working it together. That God uses all of these things, even our bad decisions. How many of you have made a bad decision? Guess what God uses your bad decisions to accomplish his good purposes? That you look around and you realize Abraham probably didn't want to give up Isaac. That Joseph didn't want to be sold into slavery. That Moses didn't want to go talk to Pharaoh. That Jesus, humanly speaking, didn't want to go to the cross. But what underlies all of that, but the wise and right and good counsel of God, was that they submitted themselves to him and trusted in his plan, his providence, his moving that he truly does work all things together for good. That is not a platitude. That is a deep and a profoundly theological statement that we rest our lives on. And so we see the providence of God working and moving, but there's no affection in that. Because then he says this, when he's talking about the birds and the flowers, he says, but your heavenly father, he doesn't say their heavenly father. Important difference in one word, your heavenly father. You're the image bearer of God. You are the one who was ransomed at a high price that God loves you. And the argument is this, if God provides for these things, how much more will he provide for you who bear his image, who are the objects of his divine affection in Christ, who Christ came to die for? That he says the birds and the all, they're here for a day and they're gone tomorrow, but we are eternal and that we're going to be with him forever. And God has a deep and a profound love for us. That he loves you. You need to preach that to your souls, friends. Because your heart, it's got diarrhea of the mouth. It talks to you all the time. God doesn't really love you. He loves them more than you. God's forgotten about you. God doesn't really care about you. If God cared about you, he would do this. And you have to preach to your heart more than you listen to your heart. And you have to preach these things. No, he's my heavenly father who loves me in Christ and sent His Son to die on the cross for me, who has given me all things, who has given me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, who's written my, my name in His hand indelibly marked, that I'm seated with Him above all rule and authority, that I'll be with Him at the consummation, that I will never be lost, that no, not one is lost, that I am His sheep, He is my shepherd, that He leads me beside still waters, that He takes me into these places. That's who I am. Preach to your hearts. Too many of you are listeners and not talkers. You have to preach these truths to our hearts. And then you come to this table. And I wish I had time to unpack it more. But I'll show you this. At this table is both providence and love. At this table is both God's providence and his love. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter understood that and preached it in his sermon. To say Christ dying on the cross was the definite plan of God. Even using the bad intentions of man. But it was God's plan to accomplish a greater good. And then 
Paul wrote in Romans, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's ultimate plan and it is his love language, his love letter to us. Someone once described the table as God's kiss to his children. The intrinsic difference between the two lost sons in Luke 15 was that the younger son was embraced and kissed by the father. This is the father's kiss. This is his affection towards you. And so he says you need to think and have this faith. And then the final thing, and I don't have time to talk about it much, is priorities, is proper priorities. But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. He's saying this, what do you seek? What is it you're most seeking? What's your treasure last week, and how are you seeking it? Is God your treasure? Is he the one that you seek first in the kingdom? It carries this idea of seeking intensely and living for it. And so today, as we wrap this piece up, I would simply say to you this. Most of you in here would say, yeah, I believe in Christ. But I would ask you a different question today that would get down to a heart matter of anxiety and and worry. You might believe in Christ, but do you believe Christ? You might believe in him in a cognitive way, but do you believe him when he says, I have you and I'm not going to lose you and I am already in tomorrow and I am not constrained by time like you are and you can trust me that I'm your heavenly father. So if you believe not only in him, but believe him today, we invite you to come to this table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the invitation that we come now to your table. Set before thee even the foundation of time and space. Caused by your great love for a lost world. Your desire to ransom sons and daughters for yourself. So we come today to this table in Christ's name. Amen.